0: Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast presented by safeopedia.com, empowering the workplace with free health and safety information. I'm your host, Pat Robinson. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our discussions with experts and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation and safety best practices. Now to today's guest. In this episode, I chat with Nicole Coughlin, risk control advisor with IMA Financial Group. Nicole is a certified safety professional and a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology from Hawaii Pacific University. She also holds a master's in business administration with an emphasis on energy management from the University of Phoenix. Nicole's work experience includes health, safety and hygiene management system development and implementation in the energy generation and oil and gas sectors. She is currently working in the insurance risk control side of this business. Our conversation is largely based on Nicole's presentation, Contractor Prequalification and Management beyond the database. This presentation has been delivered at ASSP events and elsewhere in 2019. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. So we have a a really good session ahead of us here. I think this will be a really good conversation, chock full of uh, real practical information and uh, examples uh, from uh, companies that you've worked with and uh, how um, the finer points of contractor management uh, can be implemented, um, and not just through the pre-qualification stage, but certainly into the active phase of a contract. So let's get grounded. Let's start with uh, current systems and methodology.
1: Absolutely. So this um, entire topic kind of came up through not only my experience in working with various contractors, but my experience in working with the other systems that are out there to qualify contractors. So a big part of these third-party services kind of are a check-the-box sort of system. Uh, A lot of them will include either a score or a grade, and then it's up to really the owner-operator or um, general contractor to develop this internal scale or grade of where the contractor stands with their safety program. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times... Um, you know, everyone totally enjoys working with these systems. I always smile when I say that because I don't think everyone, anyone ever jumps up and down that they're so excited to work in one of these systems and that (laughs) they run really smoothly all the time and they're a lot of fun to be in. So we all know that they kind of go through a lot of the total recordable incident rate statistics. There's sometimes a safety questionnaire in there. You can look up past. Enforcement agency audits, whether it be OSHA, um, EPA, etc. There's other safety statistics and performance factors you can look up, but in a in a really limited fashion. It's not based on field audits or leading indicators, especially around things like safety meetings or training. And then sometimes there's exemptions that the contractor can request an exemption for a program. Um, but really it's about having a discussion around how a owner operator is going to develop their internal scale or grade and what parameters are you holding your contractors to?
0: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great bunch of points that, uh, you brought up there. Um, a couple of things that I think are, are noteworthy. Um, one for certain is the sort of size and, and scale and the amount of, um, administrative effort that's required to uh, comply with a third party registry and then as you as you rightly indicate the uh these systems are restricted in terms of really just uh, this is what databases do they crunch data so it, it makes it difficult for those systems to uh provide um, the knowledge and the reference points that um hum- a human being would do when assessing a contractor and um And uh, even if you look at things like um, leading indicators versus lagging indicators, lagging indicators are fairly well-established. They've been around for for decades and decades and uh, um, seem to be well-known and well-embraced by um, broad swaths of... um, of industry where leading indicators don't have the benefit of that. I think that there's probably a bunch of things that many, many companies would um, agree that, yeah, these are valuable indicators, but how do you distill them into say a a reporting mechanism that can be one size fits all, or as commonly applied, say as OSHA rates or, or something. Um, And something I, I came across that I think sort of illustrates the, um, the difficulty here is I came across an article in ENR magazine. This was in April of this year. And they have a, a substantial story here called EMOD Madness. And the basic <laughs> gist of the story is that uh, there is, I think this is the port of San Francisco that had um, established a uh, an EMR threshold of uh, 08 and anybody who was uh, worse than a 0.8 was being automatically disqualified from uh, bidding work to, to the port. And so this, this causes um, a lot of problems when there's this sort of arbitrary uh, approach to it using these lagging uh, metrics that you're, you're talking about. So just examples exactly. where, yeah, these things can be really problematic.
1: Yeah, and we see it all the time working in the insurance industry where, you know, if they don't have a 1.0 EMR, the amount of business that they are awarded is greatly affected. Right. So it's not that black and white, you know, heavy emphasis on the contractor's legging statistics really isn't the full
0: picture. So when you're looking at uh, leading indicators, um, you mentioned a couple of things you had mentioned uh, training and I think orientation uh, fits in there somewhere. What would be valuable uh, leading indicators that a general contractor or a large owner operator could be looking at?
1: Some leading indicators could be things around especially safety training, Mm -hmm. not just for compliance, but what the behavior and culture uh, of safety is in that organization. Have they had any sort of safety leadership training? Are they doing developmental training? Um, And same thing with doing their own auditing and things like that. Um, taking a look beyond just a checklist type system and having a conversation with a contractor to qualify them, whether it's a mom and pop shop and you're talking to the, you know, owner slash CEO slash CFO slash safety manager, (laughs) or it's a bigger company and you're having the conversation with the risk manager or safety manager, having those discussions and getting an established list of questions to guide that conversation yeah. Could be really, really helpful and, and really learning about that contractor's methodology, setting the tone. Are they learning from previous incidents or are they not communicating lessons learned? Uh, that could be a very crucial part of a le- leading indicator.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You had mentioned um, leadership training and um the 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 nature and the flavor of the training that you provide, uh, line supervision and management all the way up to executive management, is obviously different than technical training you might quantify in employees and maybe the first line of of supervision. Um, so if there's an expectation that uh, the company establish um, certain things in terms of uh, culture and knowledge um, and be able to lead the safety effort, um, then it's a reasonable expectation to have them quantify what their training requirements for, um, for management training and in, in safety loss management. There's a variety of things that uh, one might go looking for. So uh, I, I concur completely with that. So when you look at uh, the third-party verification services, there's a variety of things that they look at Um, And again, uh, basically data and documentation uh, that gets uploaded to these systems. So at least there's uh, capability to acquire um, information, but it's uh, once you've got that information, what you do with it.
1: Exactly. And tracking certain things to expiration dates and renewal dates is really critical, especially when it comes to certificates of insurance or a contract or master service agreement. Um, even sometimes OSHA 300 logs, going back and looking to make sure that the fresh, you know, newly dated documents are uploaded um, to these systems, but also that someone's kind of keeping their eye on when these things expire.
0: So in terms of um, internal company verification, there's some key elements to consider there, yeah?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, a big one, I would say, is a lot of companies sometimes will take on the The theory and persona that the lowest bid may win every time. Is it all about the money? (laughs) And sometimes we know in running a business it absolutely is. But there's a lot more than just focusing on the money. You know, most contractor programs tend to focus heavily on managing risk and insurance coverage. Um, The dollar amount and contract cost appear to be the driving factors for creating the contractor management program. However, we know now that safety really is just a good business practice. There's right. been plenty of studies out there, as well as just theories to say that, you know, being having a good safety record and practicing good safety practices and even beyond compliance is really good business. And that's also a way to get awarded jobs. And we're seeing that um, culture shift in various industries, um, you know, especially construction and oil and gas, where safety just keeps getting stronger and stronger year after year. Um, But we will also want to make sure that we're not doing a one-size-fits-all. You know, if you have these small mom-and-pop shops, what about them? You know, they want to compete for business as well. So it's really it's really an entire full circle approach
0: right um, there's a couple of comments there and you you mentioned the the smaller organizations the moms and pops and uh, um, smaller companies say under ten kind of thing you know they they really are disadvantaged uh, particularly when having to deal with a registry um, and there's two things it's not just a matter of uh, sort of invoice cost to participate on the um, on the registry, um, it's the level of knowledge, um, required to, uh, to get compliant. And then the, the job of staying compliant, um, over time. And particularly if there is no, uh, real commercial opportunity uh, relatively soon so quickly downstream of the pre-qualification activity then a lot of smaller companies really just have to make hard business decisions as to whether they want to participate or not um so so that is problematic um, and really with any pre-qualification system whether it's using a third-party registry or internal if it's not um sufficiently lean, at least at the first contact stage, then it can um, unnecessarily penalize some of the smaller companies. The other thing that uh, uh, that I would mention here is the value of doing, and this is, I, I think, a, a best practice that a lot of general contractors um, are either using or, or uh, consider doing in some fashion. And that would be having... Um, a technical pre-qualification and a financial pre-qualification. So, if you have a series of bidders for work, and they provided their their technical information in terms of what kind of organization they are, what skill sets they've got, how they would execute um, a given scope of work, um, what their their licenses and um, uh, qualifications are, that's a, a technical sort of bid tabulation that could be done. And that can be, um, you could rank your uh, bidders Uh, based on that technical evaluation and then open up the financial bid tabulation and see where everyone sits um, according to um, the dollars um, and ultimately where the the bids lie. So it's a little bit different in terms of process where I think many companies will simply just, you know, open up the the bid tabulation, the financial information and say, right, okay, so let's rank the contractors, then go look at um, some of this other technical data where uh, if you change the process a little bit and look at technical first, rank the contractors, then look at financial. Um, it gives you maybe a different outlook.
1: Absolutely. And even deeper into that, some companies only pre-qualify for maybe a large job, right? They're just looking at the riskiest type of job or contract right. um, and high risk. And they're not really looking at all the other little guys right. so or smaller types of jobs that maybe aren't, award, you know, cost a great amount of money or have a great deal of risk but there may still be some risk there and maybe they're only doing it once they're qualifying them once and saying hey we're good (laughs) and they're we're seeing you know there's a lot of evidence and claims um especially to go back and make sure that you're rechecking um you're rebidding work you know in a fair equal and accurate way and you're also doing pre-qualification at the same time
0: so in terms of um yeah, again, with current systems and methodology, there's some, uh, some information that you, you talked about um, from the Campbell Institute and um, some other things really to consider um, outside of just technical experience.
1: Absolutely. So the Campbell Institute put out a great study um, article Back in I believe it was 2015 and 2016 um, where they basically looked deeper into the contractor pre qualification process and how contracts are awarded for certain high risk contractors or work and they basically came up with um, The statement that I absolutely love and live by which is screening for high incident rates and avoiding contracts to high-risk contractors not only reduces liability and insurance claims, but it creates safer work sites and increases the profitability for all parties involved. Right. Um, this was the Campbell Institute is tied to the National Safety Council kind of as their research body. And um, I believe they put out a newer version of this too to kind of refine it. But they have some fantastic suggestions in that article that suggests, you know, are we valuing contractors' technical experience and past experience? Are we looking at their reputation and references? Um, or is it, again, just going back to the cost? Um, are we having them submit pro- proposed work methods as well as a project completion timeline? Um, and is safety and health part of that discussion? And a lot of times, too, you know, a really valid point is once a contractor is approved, how long are they approved for? Is it through just that one job, or as I alluded to earlier, is it an annual process, or are they staying on the list as an approved vendor indefinitely with no re- re-evaluation? Oh, you know, oh, we've used this company for twenty years; we're good. Or my <laughs> brother-in-law works there; I, I, they're good. We don't need to re-examine them.
0: <laughs> yeah, the number of times I, I've heard in in um, in my career where uh, the response was, "Hey, you know, we've worked with those guys for a decade. They can actually be exempted from the process. Uh, we know them so well." And and regarding the Campbell Institute, uh, I'm familiar with the uh, uh, the white paper you're um, referencing there. And in the show notes for uh, for this conversation, we'll put the link to um, that particular um, that particular article because it's uh, a really good piece of work. These are really um, critical things that you've just mentioned regarding the, the things that um, hiring organizations ought to value. When I was in uh, the construction industry myself, one of the things that we typically would look for in this area is a project-specific execution plan. And... Um, just reviewing that document gave us some insight into a couple of things, and and one was, um, did the bidder look at our standards, and did they um, create their project-specific plan uh, around our minimum standards for the project, and where did they weave in their own activities? And it really just gave us um, some insight as to how much effort they put into it, and gave us some expectations as to how they would sort of implement and roll out, and and uh, what our expectations for the them to really just manage safety once they were mobilized would be so that's just you know one example and and I think probably a best practice for uh, companies that are doing project work where you sort of have um, a defined uh, start and stop it's a little more difficult maybe in in longer term service industry kind of thing because um, sometimes work scope ebbs and flows and and that kind of thing Uh, but nonetheless just something that we had found valuable uh, in times past. I think the, the issue of um, how often you renew uh, as well, uh, because the idea that a contractor does not change um, over the course of years and their, their capacity and, um, uh, even their, their safety performance um, should be reviewed um, more than just once. Uh, once you're on a list is, is one thing, and that's an important step. But maintenance uh, ongoing uh, of uh, a preferred contractor or an approved contractor list, as you suggest, is also a, a pretty key thing. So if there's an example you could use in, in this area, um, uh, there are some case studies that we had talked about in prep for this conversation
1: yeah, absolutely. So I was working in the oil and gas industry several years ago, um, and it was one of the first fatalities, unfortunately, I had investigated. But what had happened was um, the owner-operator that I had worked for, we were using a third-party verification system to pre-qualify a contractor. Um, and in this case, this contractor who had the fatality had a perfect score. So all the boxes were checked, safety program looks great, your TRIR and EMR, all that looks great. The fatality occurred basically in the back of a hydrovac tank truck. So it's basically an enclosed um, container system on the back of this truck and it has an agitator in the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was the employee decided, the contractor decided to climb into the back of that Truck to clean out some sand that had gotten stuck in the agitator. Um, no lockout takeout was performed to basically make sure that there was no residual energy that was going to start up that agitator. And um, as soon as he got in there with the pressure washer and loosened up some of that thick sand, sand um, it came loose and the agitator ended up pinning him. Um, super. It was really really sad. A young guy with a family. Um, this was up in North Dakota, and of course this this space that he entered was also a permit required confined space. So as a result of this, um, we decided to do a post incident uh, an independent audit of all high scoring contractors to see, are we missing something here? You know if this could happen but yet the database says all is well with safety, what went wrong, and where's the disconnect? We ended up, a result of that audit was that 80% of the contractors we audited had employees who knew there was a safety manual but didn't know how to access it and were not trained in safety procedures, and they were actually found to be out of OSHA compliance altogether.
0: Yeah, and we'd give a, an indication that uh, the third-party organizations will only scratch so deep um, when you, when you look at implementation, it's very difficult for, um, you know, a database to uh, have a handle on how information is taken from uh, the written black and white uh, and communicated and reinforced in the field. And this is just a great example where um, the pre-qualification process uh, can be uh Misleading regarding what the capacity and the ability to to manage safety and, uh, in the real world is. Um, so there's that break-off point between um, the theoretical and uh, the reality of the field.
1: Exactly, there absolutely is. And again, it goes back to having that conversation. I mean, in the, in the audits that we ended up doing, we were asking employees, do you know what a permit required confined space is? I mean, something that simple, and they had never been trained on it. They had no clue what it was. So therefore that worker that was killed didn't even know that he was entering an area that was hazardous.
0: So what was some of the, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a real shocking lack of, of knowledge there um, given the, the high hazard. Um, and there's a couple of things you mentioned, permit required confined space, um, stored energy, um, a couple of you know fairly apparent um, hazards that uh, this worker was not um, knowledgeable of. So, Downstream of the investigation here, um, what were the outcomes?
1: So we ended up implementing a contractor safety and health expectations document. So this was a document that accompanied our master service agreement or contracts Mm. with all contractors. And it just outlined every expectation that we had from, you know, working in confined spaces to trenching and shoring, what PPE they were going to wear on site, incident reporting protocols. Um, it went into various areas where we wanted to set a minimum expectation. And we made sure that it was attached you know, to the contractor MFA as a legal binding document. Right. Um, we also took that document and created a contractor safety orientation training that basically when we were awarded work and then annually thereafter, we would train the contract workers that would be working on our location with our site specific information so it included everything in that safety and health expectations document and then they were awarded a sticker that said the current year and they could wear it on their hard hat and now we see this practice very common um, amongst even you know construction and in the energy industry so that was just a couple things we did we also took it a little bit further and because communication i want to keep bringing up communication and how important it is to not always be behind the computer and and screen contractors, but go out and actually have conversations with employees and their safety management. We ended up doing contractor town hall meetings where we would bring in all the safety managers or owners of the contractors that we had awarded work to and we would have a discussion around communication, what's going well, what's not going well, um, that would also be a great time for us to communicate our contractor safety and health expectations, mm-hmm. and what parameters we're going to hold them to. We ended up doing those contractor town hall meetings twice a year. Um, I've had other clients do them once a year, and they call it a contractor uh, conference. Uh, we took it even further and did field safety audits that were on behalf of us, the owner operator, and we conducted them frequently to identify what compliance as well as knowledge gaps are present in their employees, but also in their shops or warehouses or yards. So this included an actual report that was shared with the contractor where it would list safety improvement plans. So basically we were coming in, we were looking in depth at their safety program through an auditor assessment process, and we would share with them the improvements that we expected them to make to either get to be in compliance forget to have a full rounded um, more robust safety program right. and then lastly we took the high-risk jobs um, we had what we called our seven golden rules so hot work was one of them to fight space entry working at heights trenching, and shoring, crane operation um, really high-risk jobs and we had them submit more than just what the third-party verification accepted um, we asked for a lot more documentation in terms of training records, operator certification, um, inspection checklists, so that we could see, you know, different dates that they're going out and actually looking at these processes.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great bunch of work. And just a comment there on the high risk stuff. Um, and you just mentioned um, that uh, you had an expectation um, or a requirement that the contractor would provide checklists, or at least there was checklists available to um to uh do field observations and and audits um and working at heights is a great example i mean you can have uh legislation you can have corporate standards um regarding working at heights but if you have a dynamic workplace like a construction uh, a construction site and you don't have um engineered tie-off points all over um, an existing structure well then you're you're talking about another level of detail where um a frontline supervisor typically has an additional uh Duty or a bit of work where they have to physically go into an area and establish um, a, a fall arrest or a fall prevention plan. So these aren't things that can just be thrown down on a um, on a, a standard that says, "Well, you, you're going." you're going to do the following. It has to be married. um, The legislation or the standard you're working to has to be married to um, the actual workplace. And the only person that can do that is uh, a competent and and really knowledgeable um, frontline supervisor, typically, not always, but uh, typically. So it's a real, it's a fine point. But when you look at these um, high risk jobs, um, this is the level of detail that uh, responsible general contractors and owner operators need to go to.
1: Exactly. Great point.
0: So let's get into, and, and that's a, a really good introduction. I think that uh, grounds us pretty well. So um, let's get into the aspects of contractor qualification.
1: Yeah. So it really needs to be a multi-dimensional process. Uh, we need to look at the contracts themselves. Uh, and so, you know, really focusing on specific language in the contract, not just renewal deadlines and things like that. And just that there is one in place. Um, There's also insurance, certificates of insurance, safety improvement plans, if that is part of the qualification process, if you're issuing safety improvement plans or bridging documents, maybe, with a contractor such as a mom-and-pop shop who may not have anything in place. Um, And then taking it a step further and doing some in-house or third-party independent audits to really evaluate the pre-qualification process. And if that contractor matches up to what your expectations are beyond just compliance requirements, then there's also pre job assessments, um, periodic assessments, going out and making sure that they're doing what they need to be doing. Um, and then there's training and orientation. So, really, it goes beyond the qualific- pre qualification step. Once those procedures, policies, training documents are submitted, and all the contractors are signed that they're in agreement with your safety culture. Um, organizations must ensure that these things actually take place. Yeah. So it's easy to put on paper, "I am safe." So if we are never following up on that statement, how do we know whether or not they are operating on luck?
0: Great points. Um, I, I really liked your comment about um, taking the process a step a step further and uh to evaluate the the pre-qualification process um one of the things that we had uh looked at at a previous project i was involved in and i think it just is is valuable in this area is doing things like um rather than taking for granted that, um, a given policy is in place. Um, and I think this is one, of again, one of the frailties of the, uh, the registry approach to life is that, um, it's fine to have, um, uh, to have a measurement system or some in some way quantify all the uh, policies and procedures that um, safe work practices that a given contractor may have. Um, but in a vast majority of cases, um, when a contractor comes to an existing facility, particularly in oil and gas, um, they typically will not be implementing their own, and this goes back to the, to the high-risk stuff that we had just talked about, um, they won't be implementing their own confined space entry standards. They won't be um, implementing uh, their own lockout, tagout procedure. They're going to be complying with um, a standard imposed on them by their client. Um, so again, in terms of efficiency, it makes um, not much sense to spend a lot of time scrutinizing contractor policy and procedure that's never going to be implemented, particularly in, in these areas. So I think a way to lean the amount of work and get a far better idea of, um, What's going to be implemented, and as a communication tool, is to look at things like just a simple gap analysis between um, the imposed um, must comply with standards that uh, an owner will um, will impose on their contractors, and um, start that start there as the base, and then have the contractor fill in um, the other standards that um, they'll be bringing, um, where the uh, the client is maybe not as um, is not as specific um, and not as directed. And that, you know, that process of just doing a bit of a gap analysis really does help in terms of, you know, what are the rules of engagement when we mobilize this particular contractor?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I've seen in doing these contractor audits for clients now that a lot of contractors will purchase pre-written, you know, package safety programs to put into these third-party verification systems so that, it checks the box. It meets the criteria. Right. Um, so there is something definitely wrong with that. And knowing that that exists out there, um, there there definitely is a gap analysis could complement and, and improve that that process.
0: For certain, um, I'm glad you had brought up the uh, the Campbell Institute uh, uh, white paper. Um, there's a bunch of things in that white paper in this particular area that, uh, um, that they recommend as best practices. Could you, could you review those items?
1: Yeah. I mean, one is pre-qualification, which is exactly what we've been talking about. But a lot of times that process stops right there. Um, they list pre-qualification as just being the first step. But if you actually go deeper, pre-job task and risk assessment um, is another level contractor training and orientation is even deeper Um, monitoring of the job and going out and assessing the contractor and looking at performance and then the last step would be post-job evaluation how did things go what was their performance like did we have issues Um, and really looking at it as you know, a whole entire approach through the entire process of the job, and then assessing it all at the end.
0: Yeah, a couple of things there. I think um, monitoring is is really critical, um, and more than just sort of general planned inspections. Just sort of getting the field and recording. Uh, what may catch one 's eye, I think uh, a far better approach is to do focused observations um, where um, you have an idea of what tasks are ongoing and you bring a checklist or some some uh, more systematic method of looking at particular and, and usually high risk um, high risk activities and um, observing against a known standard um, when you're in the in the workplace so I think that's um, a best practice that I think is really valuable so I totally support that that thought there and also post-job evaluation historically at least my, my experience has been that this is an area that almost every organization recognizes the value of but few um, do it and do it particularly well Um, and and might have something to do with the nature of projects in that uh, people are moving on to other things towards the end of a job and that kind of thing and uh, people Mm -hmm. get pressed for time Um, but nonetheless it's such a valuable um, activity to be looking at okay well how did we how did we do how did the contractor do what are areas that um, uh, could be identified for improvement down the line and um, if we mobilize this contractor at some point uh, um, down the line, do we uh, have some resource documents or something recorded um, where we can work with them to get them up to the next level of of expected performance? So let's talk about uh, contract uh, and ma- contracts and master service agreements and and where some of the controls and value added pieces can be here.
1: So I actually have a, a kind of a funny story, although the the um, contractor didn't think it was funny. <laughs> this is one of our clients who. Had a contract between them um, and a subcontractor. Well, they were the subcontractor. So it was between them and the owner operator. Um, and within the contract, in fine print, it said that they would be required to provide one safety lunch. Um, it did not specify which lunch. And they actually um, decided one day the owner operator came out and said, hey, you know, we all have been safe, or the GC came out and said, we have all been safe this amount of days. Um, you know, we need to have the safety lunch now. Well, they just ordered the lunch, and it ended up costing around $10,000. Um, much to the contractor's surprise, they were like, what do you mean really we have to pay for this? So it, it was really important and kind of emphasizes the point that you need to read your contracts and make sure that there's no embedded language in there that's making you stick to certain things, um, like a safety lunch, because they can be those can be really costly.
0: <laughs> I, I think that's uh, I think that's a great example, and I would say um, again, in, in my experience in the construction business, um, it was generally fairly rare that uh, field safety people, so project assigned. Uh, health and safety professionals were actually familiar with the health and safety specific requirements that were written into uh the contract um, so I understand that there's you know some methodology or pathology whatever you might call it um as to why you would not necessarily share all the all the commercial terms and various other things with um maybe the safety folks and quality and, and um, some of the others. Uh, But certainly the safety requirements, everybody should know what's embedded into the contract and uh, what is not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we actually had another um, case study with an oil and gas operator where they hired a third party water hauler. Very typical, very common in this industry. And um, the trucking company had a $1 million policy. Well, the truck ran a stop sign. Hit a car, it um, killed two children in the back seat. The mother in the front seat survived. Um, the contract required an $11 million policy, as well as listing um, the contractor as an additional insured endorsement on right. their insurance. And as a result, the company ended up paying $3.2 million after the first million limit um, or deductible, so to speak. And they built a park in their memory, which was also a million dollar project. So as a result of this alone, that company, as well as we, you know, preach this all the time that if a contract states specific limits or information, ensure that it's actually in place. Um, The $11 million policy and an additional insured endorsement would have been adequate in this case, but no one actually checked to see that it was actually in place.
0: Such critical points. Now, a really tragic outcome here with the, uh, the deaths of two children and um, probably a mother that was uh, um, significantly banged up if uh, the incident was of that high severity. And also, um, really stresses the point that, that you've just made regarding um, actually having a, ma- a means to verify insurance specifics. Um, an additional insured requirement or an additional insured endorsement is becoming just absolutely mainstream these days. Um, a few years ago and, and uh, Nicole, you'd have uh, good reference points um, for this given that um, insurance is, is your, your business. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, a couple of years ago, additional insured, a few years ago, was um, you know not as mainstream as it is now. And it's becoming just absolutely uh, as, as common um, as anything you'll see. And there's just a, a huge delta, obviously, between um, holding a $1 million policy versus the $11 million policy that was specified. So there's just a, a vast amount of risk here for uh, both contractor and client.
1: Yep. And we are seeing insurance carriers actually not only request this anymore for their, for their clients, but actually start to require it.
0: Yeah. So I'd say this is an area where, um, a database, whether it's a homegrown access thing or, or a third-party, uh, a third-party system, um, can be used effectively. But and, and this is the kind of detail that a purchaser of these kinds of systems, or if someone is setting up um, uh, a homegrown database. Um, but this is the, the the kind of information that the system needs to be capable of of uh, providing to you. So what are the additional insureds? Um, what are their names? Um, what are the policy amounts? And are those certificates uh, remaining? valid if there's only one thing that you ever did in terms of uh contractor pre-qualification and, and trying to reduce risk is to ensure that um that subcontractor is insured and um the insurance stays in force so um great uh, great example there so what about msas um and, and contracts? contracts there's some finer points here that uh contractors can keep in mind
1: yeah so if you're part of, you know, pre-qualifying a contractor in your organization, things to make sure that you include in a contract or a master service agreement, that you're not just Googling, you know, what to include in a contract off the internet. Um, It is a legal binding document, so it needs to definitely run through a lawyer or a legal team. Um, However, at least a bare minimum, um, a contract needs to include a copy of the contract, So you need to have one (laughs) between the company as well as the contractor. So make sure one is in place. It doesn't matter the size of the work or the size of the contractor, one needs to be in place. Even if it's an independent contractor, um, there should be a contract in place. Uh, Also a supplemental waiver and or supplemental contractual declaration that's signed and notarized between the two parties. You wanna make sure that you have a separation of church and state. Um, so to speak, between the contractor and the owner-operator. Um, you want to—you don't want to get into employment law. So, for example, it's fine to have a completion schedule and a range of the mutually agreeable work hours, but you don't want to be dictating every single thing the contractor does or even doing things like buying them training or buying them a computer. Um, we want to make sure that we have that separation listed in the contract. Um, also, make sure that it includes the scope of work. At the end of the day, if the contractor decides that they don't want to do what was mutually agreed upon at the very beginning, this contract is your legal binding document to go back to and make sure that the scope of work is listed in there. Your payment terms are listed in there. Um, any safety expectations, as I mentioned earlier, with the contractor safety and health expectations documents. You want to also have an indemnification clause that the contractor agrees to protect, defend, indemnify, and hold harmless the operator, its joint owners, its subsidiary, and affiliated companies against all claims, demands, and causes of action. Mm-hmm. That is a standard indemnification clause that should be in there. Um, you also wanna make sure that the contractor at all times will assume liability. That's another sentence that could be in there. Um, for whatever behavior that they do or cause while working on your location. And then last is legal jurisdiction. What laws are we talking about in what state? Are they working in only one state or are they working in multiple states for you?
0: Yeah, lot, lots to consider there. All of those things are, are just so critically important. And uh, bottom line is is that um, these things can only be covered under a contract, as you suggest, or an MSA uh, master service agreement. Um, Yet we've seen cases where uh, clients will hire contractors on a purchase order um, because the pre-qualification process that they have, um, be it with a third party or internal, um, has so much implementation friction. It's just so so difficult to get through administratively or maybe from an invoice cost point of view that um, the field will find workarounds um, to avoid this amount of uh, administrative effort in, in order to um, get their deliverables complete. So um, all the things that you just mentioned there go out the window if you do not have a viable contract or or MSA and you're purchasing services with a PO or some other mechanism. So those are a bunch of dos. Um, what are some of the the don'ts for the contracts and the MSAs?
1: So, again, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> so we, of course, advise that you um, definitely contact, a, you know, your own legal team to, to refer to what should be in the contract and what shouldn't be. But some of the guidelines that, that we have kind of come up with are, number one, not setting hours or dictating time or performance. Um, that kind of gets back into that co-employment issue. You don't want to hold them to strict um, rules and things like that. You wanna make sure that there is some loose um, rules and things around that. Um, The contract should show the terms and timing of the service to completion, and that's about it. Um, You don't wanna provide tools of any kind or office space to the contractor, or or even put that in a contract. Um, Don't put in there that you're gonna pay them in their individual name. Um, Ensure the terms of pay are in the contract. That's really important. A lot of times we've seen a company go by a completely different name, uh, or it's, hey, my brother-in-law owns the company, we're gonna pay him in his individual name. Um, Again, back to that liability, you wanna make sure that you're paying the contractor in the contractor's name. Um, Don't pay for any employee benefits, licensing, certifications, training, things like that, to make sure you keep it minimal training and direction to that individual or those contractors. You don't want to commingle your business operations. So maintain separate and distinct operations. Um, A key too, you know, if you have a contract in place, you have to hold up your end of the bargain, which is not terminating the work during the contract period that you've agreed upon. Um, Do not require the individual to work exclusively for you or your business. Um, That can also be something that could get you into trouble
0: yeah that last point would be sort of blurring the line between um, contracted services and personal services. if um, that person is um, you know really just works exclusively for you and um, no one else then um, I know from uh, some points of view um, in terms of taxation and various other things that um, the uh, the governing bodies in those areas. Uh, may well see that person as an employee um, if they work exclusively only for you. Um, so there's there's things to uh, be considered there. And the idea of commingling business operations, I think that's a great point, Nicole, from, um, from the point of view that sometimes um, a general contractor will feel obligated to um, really provide uh, a lot more direction and sort of oversight. Um, and this t- has a tendency to, to maybe take the pressure off um, the contractor's management um, and they just sort of sit back and um, allow themselves to be, uh, to be directed instead of um, knowing their business and leading their business. So insurance, this is such a big, uh, such a big piece. And we've talked a little bit about it, but um, Uh, You and I had chatted about uh, uh, a case study here regarding um, insurance and um, some things that we could be mindful of there.
1: Exactly, yes. And a certificate of insurance, you know, is good to have at hand to prove that insurance has been procured by the contractor. But is that really enough? And this case study really emphasizes that. Um, A little bit of background on what happened here. There was a general contractor that was contracted with a roofer. Um, to partially remove and then install a new roof on a school. And the roofer was contractually required to defend and indemnify the general contractor as well as provide any additional endorsement, um, additional insurance endorsement, excuse me, for ongoing and completed operations for any claim resulting in the roofer's own negligence. So what ended up happening was a thunderstorm, of course, came by and struck the school. <laughs> well, part of the roof was removed um, and it was inadequately, inadequately covered by the roofer. So, of course, water entered the interior um, with a larger amount of damage being to the existing roof. Uh-huh. Uh, the owner called a mitigation company but never told the general contractor about this incident. And the mitigation company did not understand the materials of the existing roof or that there were roofing operations in place. Um, And once the general contractor was advised to the damage, it ended up being too late for the roof to be dried out and and completed as planned because two-thirds of that roof had been removed, structurally compromising the entire roof. So what ended up happening was the general contractor routinely worked with this roofer, but they never followed up regarding proof of insurance for this project. Um, the roofer allowed his insurance policy to lapse and just kept doing business as it. Um, The school ended up suing the roofer, and the roofer was going to allow a default verdict. And the general contractor's carrier provided defense to the roofer. Um, the general contractor was exposed to vicarious liability right. yeah. in the default verdict, which basically means they were held responsible for the actions or omissions of another party. And what ended up resulting from this was the demand was four point five million, uh, but the claim settled out of court for six hundred thousand under the general contractor's commercial general liability umbrella okay. policy yeah great. so a lot can go wrong <laughs> if you don't verify that you have a certificate of insurance in place
0: great example um, the the six hundred k doesn't seem that much I mean that's a big hit against the uh, against the general contractor's uh, policy, Um, but it's uh, far better than the the $4.5 that was originally demanded.
1: Exactly. And what we don't see here is all the other costs for defense costs, time um, that it took to get the new roof on, Um, also reputation that was harmed in this process as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So digging into the details there a little bit, uh, when you're talking certificates of insurance, what are some of the specifics that uh, contractors and GCs should be mindful of?
1: So a certificate of insurance, also known as a COI, basically provides insurance coverage for that contractor. Um, It usually consists of information on the type and limit of coverage. Um, It should have an insurance company listed on there. There should also be a policy number, for that insurance coverage listed on there. The named insured should be listed on the COI, meaning the contractor's name, not some individual's name. And it should have the policy's effective periods, which typically are one year. These are all critical parameters to look at to make sure that they have not only general liability, but also work comp coverage um, enforced for the contractor's business. So. We see too, you know, what is your responsibility? At the end of the day, you know, in this case study, we saw that there was an established relationship. This may lead to complacency on our part because of the trust in that relationship. But as we saw, this trust led to the general contractor insurance, um, you know, paying for something that they should have not had any responsibility in. So when we look deeper kind of at this, you know, insurance carriers or insurance brokers a lot of times offer certificate of insurance tracking tools because again they do expire typically every year and it takes a lot more sometimes than just reaching out to a contractor and asking for a current certification sometimes you really have to push them and track it down almost Um, you know most data management systems they will have a coi tracker for companies to utilize so if you don't have methodology for one now Um, I would absolutely recommend getting something in place so that you're looking at that. A little bit more around, you know, your responsibility. You want to verify the name on the certificate of insurance matches the contracting company exactly. If there's any difference, that means that they're not insured. So, you know, at a company I worked at before, the electrician had about three different names that he used to perform work under, but only one of those was his actual company name and not the one that he wrote the contract with or certificate of insurance with. Right. So he actually ended up being rejected in our data management system because of that. Um, you know, it could be a difference between an LLC versus Inc. Um, but that stuff really matters when it comes to the certificate of insurance as well as to the contract. So make sure that you're making those requests for a certificate of insurance to the carrier or broker, not just to the contractor. Uh, Set reminders of expectation dates to follow up and request a new COI um, to ensure that continued coverage is in case or in place. And then another really kind of scary thing about a certificate of insurance is if you Google one um, on the internet, you can actually download a blank certificate of insurance and fill it in yourself. Um, And we've seen some contractors do this. They've put in fake numbers fake policy names to and so you really do need to sometimes dig deeper and verify this
0: information yeah that uh, that is a little bit worrisome um it's an interesting point that you make there can you comment a little bit further about this aspect of um, names on certificates because um, a phenomenon that exists out there is numbered companies um, but of course they don't um typically promote themselves as a numbered company, they will acquire a trade name and uh, the trade name might be, you know, Joe's water truck or something of that nature. Um, And how does the insurance industry treat a situation if um, the COI is issued in the name of a trade name versus the actual legal name?
1: Yeah. So in that case, it absolutely would not be covered. Simply, so if if a claim happened, if something happened and we went to go back to that certificate of insurance to look at the policy um, and the trade name was listed instead of the actual legal company name, um, the the fault, so to speak, would end up falling back onto the owner-operator company to be in charge or responsible for not verifying a COI was in place, and therefore it would probably, the amount of damages would fall under their general liability policy.
0: Right. So proactively, um, a contractor then could um, have their COI issued as the numbered company first, if that's the case in this particular scenario, um, operating as um, whatever their trade name is. And would that be uh, sufficient to cover them off?
1: Yep. As long as they have that listed in there.
0: That wraps up part one of my conversation with Nicole Coughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, look for part two, wherever you access your favorite podcasts. If you like what you heard today, or if you've liked previous podcasts, or have interesting subject matter that our audience can learn from, we want to hear from you. Check our show notes at safopedia.com podcast. You can email me at pat.robinson at hsebestpractices.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.